Welcome to another episode of the Learning Journey podcast. My name is Wayne Heinz and I am your host once again today as we head off to Vancouver, Canada and catch up with Keith Ketchum. Now, Keith has been part of the MAF family for many, many years and he has learned a lot across that journey. He's going to share some of his story and also some of what his current role entails, a maintenance training coordinator for MAF International. Very much looking forward to Keith and sharing his story. So let's welcome him to the Learning Journey podcast. Hey, Keith, how are you going? Oh, thanks very much, Wayne. Uh, how's it going, eh? Yeah, very, very good. We're going to get to, I guess, your involvement with MAF in terms of that. But before we do any of that, people might not know Keith Ketchum. There's probably some people in the organisation, maybe newer ones, but tell us about your MAF story. How did you first get involved with this organisation? Okay, well, I was involved in a boys group in my teens and they had uh like like boy scouts it was it, there was an airman trail and in that trail they encouraged me to write to three mission aviation organizations and i got the nicest reply from math so that's when i decided i would tailor my courses to get a mechanics license and uh start working on my pilot's licenses uh, they also wanted me to be 26 years old and married so I put them all in order. I said, well, it'll take years to get a mechanics license, many hours to get a commercial pilot's license. I can't do anything about being 26. And how long does a wedding ceremony take? 30 minutes. So that was the order I put them in. The problem is when I got out of maintenance school, I could only find a job on turbine engines, namely Boeing 747s, DC-10s, 737s. And I wondered if God knew the difference between a piston engine and a turbine engine, because everybody knows that MAF only flies single engine piston aircraft. Well, in 1983, I got a call from MAF headquarters in California saying they need me to go to Ethiopia or 87,000 people are going to die. And I thought that was quite compelling. But I said, you know, I don't have a, any piston engine experience. No, no, no. They said, we need a turbine license. And that's when I realized that God actually did know the difference between a turbine license and a piston license. And to be honest, I've worked maybe one year on piston engines my entire career with MAF because turbines have been the way that we've been doing it since about 1984. It's amazing, isn't it, how uh, God always goes before us and we're, we're always playing catch up. You know, we, we think we're, we're preparing ourselves, um, but he's actually preparing us often in a different way for, you know, the, the plan that he has for us. That's right. Uh, as far as the being married business, uh, as when I left for Ethiopia, I thought, well, I'll just have to put that on hold. I met Rosie the second day in Ethiopia. So you had that covered as well. <laughs> uh, very, very good. So uh, let's fast forward to today. What's your current role? So explain to us, I guess, like what your title is, um, but more than that, what it actually involves. Okay. I am the maintenance training coordinator for MAF International. Uh, I was working as the maintenance support manager for the Africa region, and it was decided that we only needed one for all of MAF International. And I spied this niche called maintenance training. And just to kind of give you some background, my parents are both teachers. Uh, my wife is a teacher. Two of my three children are teachers. So I thought if I'm not doing something to do with education, I won't have anything to say at the dinner table. So I took a course. It was a basically two-year course. I stretched it into 10 years and combined that with my experience in maintenance. 
I now prepare training modules for our aircraft engineers on the field. That includes everything from the health and safety bits, induction, uh, familiarization modules on our various different aircraft types, and training for taxiing, engine runs, and things like that. So what was it that sort of got you into the the learning slash training area? Like, what, what, why did you venture down that path? So as the maintenance support manager, uh, we used to hold annual conferences. So we got all the senior engineers together, normally in Nairobi, and called it the senior engineers team meeting. One year, I accused them of not being a team because they weren't managing anything together. And I was going to switch it to training meeting. But that's how it was. It was a borderline training and building a team. I did that every year and we enjoyed it so much that when I realized there was nobody actually doing training full time, that was attractive to me. It seems like training is in almost everybody's job profile, but nobody's actually doing it full time, like not not focusing on it. When I look around the organization, especially in the engineering, and I ask for people to do some training and Inevitably, I get the reply, I don't have time. So what I am doing in my basement in Vancouver, BC, is helping our chief engineers, our directors of maintenance with training materials so that, yes, I realize they don't have time. So let me help you by preparing materials that you can pull out of the box, as it were, and use to train your people. So can you give us maybe a, an example, a firsthand example of what that actually looks like? So I'm hearing you saying that uh, managers are saying don't have time for training or people across the organization saying don't have time for training. But what you're trying to do in a sense is make some time for the training to get done. That's right. I wouldn't accuse every chief engineer of being a natural trainer. Many of them are very good mentors to actually take time out of their busy jobs keeping aircraft airworthy and set up a training module, think of new topics every month, keep the training records, design a plan. It's a lot. They already have a lot on their plate. And in our structure, maintenance has their own training element. Pilots have their training element. It's not leaving it to the learning and development department to do training for aircraft mechanics. We have to have one of our own doing it. So I'm grateful that MAF has the capacity to allow one of us to do training full time. What's maybe the the change that you've seen across the, the time frame that you've been in your current role when it comes to people and learning? Like, is there a hunger for learning or is it just one of those things of, well, I've got to do this, I've got, I've got to tick the box, uh, so I'll do it. But, you know, there's, there's almost like a reluctance for it. Yeah. Ask any engineer to close their toolbox and go and sit in front of a computer and you, you'll get some resistance. I knew that right from the beginning because I am an engineer. I try to make the the modules interesting by including a little classical music or a few jokes, but essentially it is trying to address that compliance issue. It's been pretty evident that most airworthiness authorities have began to take an interest in what training are we doing in-house. It's not good enough to have the manufacturer's course on, say, the Cessna Caravan 
or the PT6 engine. They want to know, how are we inducting our people doing our continual professional development, our recurrent training? How are we approving our engineers who sign out the aircraft? Every airworthiness authority is at a different stage, but we're seeing it across the system. They want to see our training manual. It might not be something they approve necessarily, but they're getting interested. And before they shut us down because we don't have a training program, let's get some content out there. So we sat down with these senior engineers and we developed a list of things that they thought their people would need from induction to you know, running an air, a turbine engine. I have massaged that list and come up with a list of 80 topics. So I'm busy. Yeah, absolutely. 80 topics. Um, and I'm guessing that things get added on top of the 80, you know, as, as time goes on as well. Yes, I wasn't anticipating single engine IFR in Papua New Guinea. That's been taking up my December and January. I can't wait to get back to something more practical, as it were. But I'd like to think we are responsive to the needs of the program. So this new initiative came up. They said, we need training packages. Okay. I basically dropped what I was doing and focus on that. And I'm happy to say that um, two of the three courses are now out there and they will get their permission to fly single engine IFR in Papua New Guinea because my contribution is, is the training package. So is it too far to say, Keith, that without what you're doing in terms of you know the, the training that and the, the learning that you're creating, that potentially planes could be grounded? Like, is that is that going too far? Um, probably. Let me put it that this way. I used to be a pilot until the turn of the century. I hung up the goggles and the silk scarf. And I, I have been an engineer on the field, uh, traveled around a lot as a maintenance support manager. And at that point, I would say, yes, airplanes would be grounded if I couldn't fly them or I couldn't get them airworthy. Now it's it's more of a, a latent factor where if we don't have this training program, we're going to be caught out. And eventually, yes, it's going to be something that the airworthiness authorities want to see, and we don't have it ready. So take us the next step then. We don't have it ready. Then what happens? Yeah, we would either have to outsource the training and send everybody off to, uh, I don't know, Scotland or South Africa or Wichita to get training or sign up for lots of online courses to do human factors training. Or we could do it ourselves and save ourselves a lot of money and actually tailor it to our types of aircraft, our type of operations. The other thing I'd like to say is that on each course I produce, there is a little course suggestions button, and I beg the learners to use it. One of the principles of adult learning is that we give credit for experience and training that they already have. I mean, I've, I've worked on caravans since 1985 when they were first produced. But I'm sitting in my basement in Vancouver and the nearest caravan is out at the Vancouver International Airport. I'm not there with the airplane anymore. I depend on our guys in the field to feed me the information, to take the pictures of the left-hand aileron flap, you know, whatever. I don't have access to that anymore. So I'm digging into the manuals and depending on the guys in the field to uh, supply the, the material. So these courses become living and current. And if something is there that's wrong or is outdated, I want to know. And then I'll change what needs to be changed and put it back up on the website. So you you talked, Keith, about, you know, what happens in the field and, you know, the SMEs and, and staffing programs and how important they are in terms of your role. I kind of want to flip that if I can and get an understanding of how important what you're doing is 
to their role in the field. So have you got any feedback from people in you know various programs that MAF are involved in around the world where they've really sort of spoken to the value of their training and how important it has been to their role? Yeah. And I mean, you asked, would airplanes not fly if I wasn't doing my job? I, I'm pleased to say that my impression of what I do is, is very reactive, that when the field needs a course or a certain way of presenting their training, I'm responsive to that. That's that's my number one priority because I know I don't want to see aircraft not flying because the airworthiness authority doesn't have what they've asked for. I don't think I can point to a particular example or a program which will remain nameless like Uganda or Papua New Guinea. Uh, yeah, the list goes on. In uh, some specific uh, instances, I get up extra early to make sure that that training is there when I promised it. Which reminds me, I promised Papua New Guinea it would be finished by today. So, all right. All right. Well, we, we won't keep you too long, Keith, but there are a couple more things I'd love to chat about. And one of those is there's there can be a perception that uh, learning, uh, particularly e-learning, which you're very heavily involved in, can be pretty boring, um, you know, and it's pretty dry and it's pretty mundane. But I, I know with some of the, the courses that you've created, and you touched on a little bit earlier in terms of, you know, some classical music, but how do you go about constructing some e-learning so it isn't dry and people just feel like they've got to sort of trudge their way through it, but you know that they're actually engaged with the content and more than that, they're engaged with the learning that is within the content. I guess, you know, you consider your audience and that's the advantage I have. I'm an engineer. I think back to those times when, you know, there's 15 or 20 of us in a room and we're doing training. And how do I do that? Well, for starters, it's very collaborative. I don't know all the answers. I depend on those subject matter experts, those guys that are still working on the airplanes to feed me the information. When they're feeding stuff to me, they have more ownership. When they know they need a course to sign somebody off to taxi the airplane, they're going to be very keen to see that that's happening. The recent example of Papua New Guinea, I've had three guys out there sending me emails every day with suggestions on how to improve the course or what not to say. So I know that I'm getting some interest there. When it comes to actually holding the learner's interest, I just let myself be myself because when we're all sitting in the room together, I'm just thrilled that that was a highlight of my year. So I try to exude that in the training and I will spend hours, I know this sounds like a waste of time, to get the right picture, to get the right text, to get it all coming together so that what's on the screen really is very relevant and nothing's wasted. I, I, I'm not interested in wasting engineers' time sitting in front of a laptop. I'm interested in them having the information that we have gained. We have learned a lot of things over the years it's almost 40 years now we've been maintaining caravans, for example. So we know how to maintain these things on the field, but maybe not everybody in the organization knows all of those tips and tricks. So trying to inject real life scenarios helps. I think engineers love to hear about problems solved. And what's maybe one other thing you touched on the fact there that, you know, you might spend hours searching for the right photo because it's important, you know, that photo conveys a lot of meaning as much as any text that's written. But what's maybe one other thing that people might not 
have an insight when it comes to your role in MAF? Because I'm sure there's people that are probably thinking, oh, Keith just chooses a photo at random and chucks it in there and goes, yeah, that'll do. So that might, you know, give them some insight. But maybe what's what's something else that they might be surprised about in your current role? Yeah, I'm often asking for photos. I mean, I know who operates which aircraft. Right now, I'm stalled. I can't continue on the course that I was uh, developing until I get the photo that I've asked for. It's it's a little frustrating because I have no authority to demand the down tools and take the photo and send it to me. But I wish they would appreciate that unless I get that photo, they're not going to get the course that they will eventually need. So I know it's it's kind of looking into the future. It's not a airplane will be grounded this afternoon thing. But, you know, when I ask for photos, I really do mean it. I wouldn't be bothering them if I didn't really need a particular photo from a particular angle so that when the chorus is produced, it makes sense. Well, we won't name names, but if that person is listening to this podcast, <laughs> Keith is waiting for the photo. Can you take it and send it through to him as quickly as possible so we can get that course done? Hey, Keith, as you sit down and maybe let's talk about that course, you know, you're waiting for the photo so you can finish it. Like, what's your, what's your hope when you finish a course and it gets uploaded to, to Elevate or it's used in some other way? What's your hope as the, the person who's put it all together? Yeah, I hope that people will learn something that they didn't know before. They'll be warned of a particular situation where we have written a maintenance notice to say, hey, guys, watch you know the length of screw you put in this panel, but to actually include it in context with the training and then these, these issues pop up. I hope we can avoid accidents. I hope we can avoid escapes, hangar escapes, because if people really are taking on what they're learning, then we don't all have to make all the same mistakes. We can learn from the mistakes of others. I've seen enough mistakes. I've made enough myself. I'm really keen that people don't have to make all their own mistakes, that they can learn from these tailor-made modules what we've learned over the years in maintaining these aircraft. Well, on behalf of many, I'm sure, within MAF, thank you for making mistakes, Keith, and (laughs) providing training so that hopefully there's no uh, mistakes moving forward, or at least uh, there's less and less of those. But do you miss flying? Not like most pilots where you would find fingernail scratches on the bedroom walls. I can do without the flying, but don't lock my toolbox, please. Then you will then you will have a very angry. I think my personality is more that of an engineer. Yeah, I was fine doing the flying um, as long as it was a, a bush sort of flying. Uh, when it became all very sophisticated and IFR, I thought, nah, I didn't really sign up for this. So I'm, I'm pretty old school when it comes to that. Map and compass and look at your watch. That's flying. If you ever write a book, call it Don't Lock My Toolbox. I like that. (laughs) Don't Lock My Toolbox. Actually, the working title of my book is Does the Archbishop of Canterbury Really Need Standby Flap System? Right. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) And we just don't have time today to unpack that. Maybe, Maybe on another episode. Thanks so much for giving us an insight into your role and what you do. Really appreciate you joining us on this podcast. Thanks, Wayne. 
Yes, many stories from Keith Ketchum. I hope you enjoyed the Learning Journey podcast today. And don't forget, you can let your family, friends and work colleagues know. Uh, it's great to have some people subscribing to the podcast and getting some feedback when it comes to hearing stories of people learning and their MAF journey. And as always, if you've got a story and you'd love to share it, then get in touch with us here at uh, the L&D department and we might very well feature you on a future edition of the Learning Journey podcast. Now, next time we head off to Ashford, UK, we're going to catch up with Stu Fitch. He has been involved with MAF for a long, long time as well, and he is a fantastic storyteller. That's the next edition of the Learning Journey podcast. Thanks so much for your company today, and we look forward to having you on the journey next time, because remember, for you, when it comes to learning and development, the sky's the limit.